As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Welcome to the latest episode of the Race IndyCar podcast. Something a tiny bit different this week. Our editorial assistant, Matt Beer, reckons that the best race finish ever is the 1997 Portland kart race, where Mark Blundell won by 0.027 seconds in a, a mixed conditions race that offered pretty much every challenge to a driver that you could possibly offer. So 25 years on. Here we are, JR Hildebrand's with me, and we've also got the man himself, Mark Blundell. Thanks very much for joining us. I hope you uh, remember 97 fondly. I do remember 97. Um, most of it was fondly, but uh, there's a couple of things that still stick in my throat, but there you go. <laughs> Before we jump in, jump back 25 years ago, just uh, curious to see what you think about the level of competition in IndyCar these days. How much are you following and, and what do you think of, what do you think of the current crop? Uh, that's a good question, JR. And actually, I'm, I'm suitably impressed because I think there's a great bunch of guys out there. Um, you've still got uh, the likes of uh, Scotty Dixon doing his magic and, um, you know, setting the, uh, the scene to many. But, uh, you know, some great young talent like the, the Herters and, uh, you know, guys like that coming through. So, listen, I watch IndyCar more than what I watch Formula One. So, probably giving you the answer there in, uh, in, in where my allegiance lies in watching good motor racing on a Sunday. <laughs> You're a man after our own hearts, Mark. <laughs> I think, I guess we should, uh, just for anyone who's not, well, I guess at this point, you should probably pause the podcast and go back and watch the the 97 race, which is available on, on YouTube to watch all the way through, which JR and I did with great pleasure before speaking to you to, today, Mark. But we should also set the scene just as a, a bit of context. I guess you came into car in 96 and uh, I guess towards the end of the season, things really started to come together for, for you at PacWest there. There was the switch from from Goodyear to Firestone Tyres, uh, which was really good timing. And then you had the Detroit race, which felt like a bit of a, a breakthrough for you two weeks before Portland, where, um, you know, it was a bit of a gamble at that point to, to go on a one-stop strategy in, in car. That wasn't something that was uh, particularly uh, usual at that point, but there was loads of yellows and, and you and Mauricio Guzman were running one-two, but both ran out of fuel late on. I guess that was one of the 
the the downsides that you were talking about at the top of the podcast there I, I guess that's a, a, a big uh, a big bad memory for you but let's stick to Portland because that's the good one um, yeah the the Firestone Wets had improved loads hadn't they coming into into 97 and I, I guess by the time we got to Detroit you had those mixed conditions did you feel like a win was possible at that point you know a win was on the cards or was there still a little bit of trepidation there no, I think I think as a as a team and and from my side of things, uh, gelling with the team. I mean, you have to take on board that when I went to IndyCar, you know, I had a very short uh, baptism of fire because I had a horrendous accident in Rio um, that kind of gave me a little bit of a wake up call in the dangers of uh, of IndyCar racing. And I think you know, so many uh, guys look at it and sort of frown upon it, but you know, trust me, as JR will uh, testify, if you haven't done it, then I suggest you be quiet. Uh, because, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty tough. Um, great level of racing. But when you go to the ovals as well, I think everybody should go there with the utmost respect. But, you know, fast tracking again, 97 season. Um, I arrived actually with a Mercedes-Benz engine deal and uh, we couldn't put that deal together until the 97 season. So that's really where everything started to gel. Um, Maurizio and myself, you know, great teammates, uh, pushed each other along, but, you know, yes, you're right. The Detroit race was one of uh, heartache and agony, but it also gave us a huge boost in understanding that we weren't far away from the uh, the win. Um, and Portland, yeah, I, I now and again see it on Twitter, and I, I see some people like uh, acknowledging that they they had a fantastic time watching it. Um, I had a fantastic time driving it, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's it's one of those races where um, you know many of us who have been race drivers have to make a genuine call uh, on their abilities and uh, you know, in, in sync with the conditions to say, right, do I want to take the risk? And, and that's the call that I made and the risk paid off. Yeah. What do you remember about the strategy of the race up until that point? I mean, at this point in time, JR, I mean, strategically, you looked above you and you saw what the weather was and, you know, you, you, you didn't really know what the outcome was going to be. <laughs> so, you know, several people as you probably will recall, if you watched the race over, several people made changes on tyres. Some of them didn't quite make it at the timing that was going to give them the maximum sort of uh, payback. Some made it very similar to us and actually didn't hang on the uh, on the black stuff and, and fell off the road. Um, but I would, I would also say that uh, those conditions as a driver suited me. I've always been competitive in a racing car in – you know, damp, drying conditions. Um, and, and I honestly take that back to my days as a motocross rider um, because mm. I, I relate to motocross in that, you know, every lap and every corner that you arrived at had changed and you're always looking for the grip on the circuit. And many a time in those conditions, I would take a very obscure racing line um, you know, that harks back to 1984 when I started in Formula 4 1600 and, uh, a gentleman called uh, Alan Jenkins was a very well-known journalist back in in our country. Uh, made a comment about it, and I explained to him why. And you know, he was quite miffed at the fact that I was doing this uh, in a race car. But <laughs> yeah, 1997 was no different. Portland, those conditions, as you well know, the circuit and a great circuit. But yeah, right call at the right time for me, and that, and I think that's basically what made the difference. And and don't get me wrong, I'm fully understanding that we uh, we won. The the race by uh, by a sniff but uh it's all about winning hey i mean you know you got it done you got it done what um i guess give us a, a bit of a 
a time machine back to to what it was like to to race in those conditions at that time. You said, you know, it's like look, you look up the sky and see, you know, what's going on. But how much help are you getting from the the team and stuff at that point as well? Because we know now, watching IndyCar and and even Formula One, how reliant the the drivers are on the teams and the the strategists and the people watching the weather and all that kind of stuff. You know, how much help did you actually get with those sort of late decision calls that you were making there? Uh, yeah, I mean, I can tell you, and and you can speak to the people back in Pakistan <laughs> who were involved in the team. Um, a couple of things. One, I never really had a spotter, even on the ovals. I mean, very very limited that we uh, had a spotter giving us information, uh, which sounds kind of crazy, but that's that's the that's the facts. Um, and actually, you know, car to to pit radio back then wasn't the quality that we have today pretty much on your shoulders. And, uh, you know, the call of coming in to say, like, I want to take tyres is it was my decision at that point. But, yes, they're going to give you some insight and they give you some understanding, but no different to what we would do today. Um, walk outside, look up in the sky and see that it's got some dark clouds. Uh, we didn't have any, you know, fandangled software giving us weather that was a mile out and coming in. It didn't exist. Uh, so, yeah, uh, listen, I, I think... From a perspective of support, massive support back in the pits, but I think most of that was willing me on and, and you know, willing on that we had the proposition of winning a race. But as we all well know, you know, that proposition actually didn't sort of come to, uh, to fruition until the very last lap and the last corner. Um, and, you know, and even at that point, I didn't know I'd won the race. I, I had no knowledge. Um, my first insight into knowing I'd won the race was actually when I got around the, the corner where Jay, I would relate where you used to have the big scoreboard, you know, like the pole. And, and I saw my number sitting at the top and, and no one came in the radio to me because they're all too damn excited. and they're <laughs> <laughs> They were already off celebrating without you. <laughs> I want to ask you a quick question just about, so like in this period, we're obviously, you know, my experience in IndyCar has always been, in, and we see it in formula one right now with Pirelli on the IndyCar side, it's Firestone. There's just one tire manufacturer. So, you know, everybody's at least on the same it's sort of a level playing field when you're in these situations thinking wets slicks, like, what am I going to do here? 97 Jack mentioned it earlier. Like the, the difference in the Firestone wet from just the previous year was, was significant, but you've got other guys out there on good years. Like, are you factoring any of that into your kind of like, like, is that coming into your mind in terms of knowing what other guys are on kind of measuring slicks versus wets on the guys. I mean, I rewatching the race. I'll have to say I was surprised that the cars on wets looked as good as they did on a drying track for as long as they did. Like, I feel like that's not something that we get out of an Indy car wet tire these days. So just walk us through or, or walk us through for the sake of the listeners of kind of what that thought process was like and, and what that, what, a, what being a part of that development process with the tires was like over the couple of years that you were there. Um, I mean, you're right. The, the Firestone took a huge leap in its advancement with the with the rain tire. Um, you know, Goodyear, I think, was pretty much the staple diet for anybody if you wanted a wet tire that was uh, was workable. In terms of me factoring in the differential between the, the competitors on Goodyear and Firestone, I, I'll be honest, no, it didn't factor in. The factoring from my side was that's the level of grip that's achievable out on the circuit at the moment. That's what I'm confident of handling I know what I think I can do with a car with a set of wets on 
and I know what I think I can do with a set of cold slicks. Um, you know, and, and I'm going to take the risk because I know if I get on the slicks and I get them up to temp, then I'm going to make some fast progress. Uh, and, and I felt comfortable and confident to do that. So that's really the only thing that factors in in my mind. And, you know, you'll, you'll be aware back in those days, I mean, it's always horrendous to talk about back in those days, but, you know, we were 900 horsepower, no traction control, no power steering. Um, you know, you, it was a bit of a brute of a car. I mean, incredible fun to drive, but they were a handful. And, uh, you know, the slightest little uh, twitch and you got the thing squirreled up on a turbo and, it, and you know, it, it would lose you in a heartbeat. So, yeah, there was lots of exciting times. Lots of people were off uh, in the boonies and lots of them managed to sort of do something a little bit special on the day. But I, I'm going to sort of put my neck on the line and say, you know, I, I think we we had a great package and we had a great combination on the day that paid off just at the right moment. And if it maybe was a lap later, maybe it would have gone a different way. Maybe Raul would have had the win. Um, but in saying that, you know, I had to marginalize my exit off the corner as it was because Gilles was doing a great job of being defensive, as you would. Um, and to this day, I still know that it's sort of like grinds in him that he lifted his, uh, his arm in celebration <laughs> uh, only to find out that he was second and not the, not the winner. But, you know, it, it's, it, those days come and go, but, um, you know, that's a race day that everyone would like to have uh, the name against for a sort of performance like that. But it's extra special to a driver. And again, you'll relate, JR, that you know what you do in the car and you know how difficult it is. And when you pull it together and it comes off, then, you know, they, they sit there in your top little five in your little sweet spot. So that'll be the children's story, you know, the grandkids story that I tell them. You know, <laughs> if we still got YouTube then, I don't know. <laughs> I was going to ask you about you. You mentioned sort of being backed up into into Raul at the end there as well, and obviously Gilles was doing a good job of kind of moving you around the track with the way he was he was defending. And uh, yeah, I guess it'd be you know it's it's kind of cool to get into your you know your mindset behind the visor to to kind of hear what what you were thinking. Uh, I, I guess did you feel you know I, I don't want to say desperate because I don't think you know it didn't look like you were driving like you were desperate at any point there, but you knew Raul was coming and you knew that the time was running out towards the end of the race there. What was the level of desperation to try and get that move done? Or did you know that it was going to be at the last corner on the last lap? No, I mean, I, did, I, I didn't know. Uh, as you are in those conditions, there are always opportune moments. And, and, and you'll see that I'm moving around the circuit a lot, trying to see where the weaknesses were, the driver in front of me. Uh, I think Christian gave me a little run for my money on a couple of occasions, uh, fit the powdy out there. And, yeah, and, and like I say, it's it's... And probably what you related to earlier, JR, is like, you know, you'll see the guys searching for the for the water on the circuit to keep those tires cooler. Um, and you probably see a lot more of that back in those days than what you do in today's world. But, you know, I, I was comfortable and confident and I knew that I had one opportune moment on the last corner of the last lap to out-drag him, um, you know, and we managed to do it. We didn't have DRS back in those days, didn't have any of those sort of <laughs> fandangled developments, but... It was all about timing. And as I say, that timing, maybe if the straight would have been 100 metres longer before the checker flag, maybe the outcome would have been different. But, you know, who cares? Because I took the win, so I'm in the history book, so that's that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it all It all looks all well and good when you see it on the stat sheet. Um, I, I want to actually just dig back in. So it's funny that you mentioned you mentioned motocross as sort of a, a, something that you related to here. And, and I bring that up because... I had a I had a conversation 
years ago with Mario and he was talking about how, you know, back when he was racing, when he was at, at Lotus and F1 that, um, uh, God, I'm trying to think of who the, he was over there with, uh, the world champ, the Kenny Roberts, um, was racing, you know, Grand Prix bikes at the same time, which were, you know, at a time when those things were just absolute monsters and that the two of them had this chat about how all the Europeans thought that they'd be lousy when it, when the weather got bad, but both of them had dirt racing backgrounds, right? So Kenny had raced, raced flat track for years, uh, you know, uh, Nikki Hayden, kind of the more modern example of coming from that type of background and, and being good in those types of conditions on a bike, Mario had raced dirt, you know, for his entire upbringing. And so they actually looked at that in, you know, in a pay on a pavement situation as being a huge advantage. So I just want to, I want to hear a little bit more about how you related to being on two wheels on the dirt and how that kind of factored into your kind of mindset, your feel for the car. And, uh, th I thought that was super interesting to hear you say. So I think that, I think there's two aspects to it. And, uh, and I don't know whether you've sort of looked over the years, but there's actually been several bike guys that have transferred into a car and they've been pretty successful. Yeah. Um, you know, Je Jeff Ward comes to mind in the U S uh, yeah, you know, even absolutely. I think Jeff's, I think Jeff maybe was actually Scottish, but I think he's been in the U.S. for a long, long time. But um, we consider yeah, it, him an American. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Our, um, I'm trying to think of the other uh, Eddie. Now well, it will come to me. Anyway, he was you know MotoGP rider and went and did IndyCar. There's been a lot of guys who have done the transition. Eddie Lawson. I think, uh, there you go, uh, yeah. Eddie Lawson. Well done. So I, I think there's a two things to do. I think one of the biggest things for me, and, and you'll relate to this, is and people like overlook it or don't kind of mention it. I think it's balance. I, yeah. It's it sounds stupid that you're strapped into a racing car, um, but like your feel for in, in a in a balance. You know, it, it sounds stupid. I know, but it, it's actually a relative. Put yourself in your road car. You know put your seat right up to the steering wheel. I'm not recommending this by any means, but put your seat right up to the steering wheel and like, you know, drive like this. And all of a sudden your balance, your, your inner body, outer body experience completely changes because your comfort and your confidence goes, you can't read the machinery. Yeah. And, and I, and I think that's a relative thing for drivers that they probably don't give credit to, but bike riders will. Um, and also for me, motocross taught me exactly what I said earlier you come into a corner and just because the racing line is, you know, A to B to C exit doesn't mean to say in those conditions, it's the fastest line. Uh, because if I see a high spot and the high spot is a little bit drained of water, I know full well that I can reach it, break on a sixpence, turn it and accelerate off. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that I always used to look for. Um, and you'd quite often, again, JR, you relate, you'll see a lot of guys sticking to the racing line, whether it's wet or dry, not always the optimum line, you know, and maybe we've given some secrets away. So uh, if you want to send us <laughs> nine ninety five, and I'll send you a postal address, then please send in your money. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, you know, from I, I, I'm totally with you on that. I think that that's, it's really cool to hear and, uh, you know, to hear about sort of the adaptability and the, you know, there's some creativity that starts to creep in there, you know, that, that you, you, we talk about that a lot, you know, just the kind of being in, being in that state of flow when you're in the car, but some of it also, you know, you lean on 
your past experiences and and uh, and some of the little things that inform inform the way you think about that. So that's that's really cool to hear. Um, I guess in it, jumping back to the race itself, where does that race stack up for you? It was your first cart win. Uh, you went on to win two more in this season. Was that sort of a breakthrough? Is this still? It's still. Is this? Is this still the one that you look back at? You know, most fondly. Um, I think it's a great race to look back at because it was so special in the way that we achieved the win. Uh, and I, I know what the the effort was that went in behind the wheel in those conditions. So you always relate to that. Um, for me, actually, that year was fantastic because we won on a street course, a road course, and an oval. So I kind of like the fact that we sort of achieved all the disciplines and had some success. But, you know, yeah, the first one's always going to be special. It was uh, our team owner, Bruce McCaw's backyard because he came from Seattle. So, you know, it was quite nice for uh, to have sort of like a home race for him and a home victory. Um, and for the team, I think for PacWest Racing, everyone had seen the sort of 96 season and the emergence of the team start to get stronger. And then when we had that sort of uh, that lift, the whole thing took on another sort of level. And I think, you know, everybody lifted their game, Maurizio included. I think everyone sort of, you know, really got, and we got some real momentum. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fond of those memories. I'm fond of the time of racing in America and I'm fond of IndyCar full stop. And I'm a big fan as of today still. So I, I'm going to jump ahead to Fontana. Just talk to us about running on you know two mile oval back then. I mean, I, you know, I've raced in Fontana in, in the modern era, but it's, it was a whole different animal back then. I hope you had a spotter there, Mark. No, no. That's incredible. Isn't that crazy? Like, that's just completely nuts to me that you guys, I mean, I, I knew that, but it's still just yeah. wild to think that in those days going, you know, 250 down the straights or whatever, like no yeah. spotter. It was definitely a different, a whole different ball of wax. Uh, so I think, I think from my side, I know Big Mo did the outstanding lap that he did. Um, I think from my side, I think it was 253 miles an hour and 227 in the corner. That was our ultimate lap on my side of the, uh, the garage. Um, okay. I mean, listen, you know yourself, driving an oval is a, is a pretty hair-raising experience at the best of times. But for me, it's one of those experiences that it's either a white-knuckle ride and, you know, any time in your racing career, it's one of those times when it's not going right, you just want to pack the suitcase and leave the pit lane and go home because it's scary <laughs> or everything is in tune and it's some of the best motor racing you will ever do in your career because when you could go side by side two other guys and if you were able to literally put your arm out and touch their shoulder because you're running that close that's something that is exhilarating and thrilling and you know to do that over a 500 mile duration is something quite special to get to the end of it that race was again a racing driver's commitment and decision making process taken in a very short space of time because I finished that race with uh blisters on my right rear tire that you know you like the size of a like the size of a cup you know in no no ways really would you have actually continued <laughs> other than knowing that you had a handful of laps left and it was a do or die moment you either went for it and you run the risk of the tire letting go and not finishing the race, or you go for it and say, you know what, I'm running the pace. I think we're gonna we're gonna have a chance of uh, of winning. And and I know to this day probably that Jimmy sits there, Jimmy Vassar, and is a little bit miffed and a bit frustrated. But hey, that's racing. And and I will take the victory in the 500 mile race because for me, you know, that was 
a highlight of my motor racing career to actually win a 500 mile oval. Um, yeah, JR, you know what they're like. The the tough cookies to break, but if you can put your name on the uh, on the on the uh, trophy, then fantastic. We'll yes. take it. My biggest regret is the year after they had a million dollar prize. Money. <laughs> <laughs> it's <just> bad timing. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's very cool. Yeah, Mark, you've gone on to, you know, achieve so much more since your, you know, your kart career with your, obviously everyone will know your your commentary career and and now you've got the successful management company as well, MB Partners. Obviously, uh, I guess sort of living your motorsport career through some of the the people you work with now, some of the younger guys that you you work with to a, to a certain extent. But just give us an idea of, of, of this period you know, we've talked about, I think indirectly, we've talked about lots of different elements that make up how good this this era was, whether it was the the competition, the level of drivers in the championship at the time, the the different engine manufacturers, different tyre manufacturers, you know, the 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 tracks that we had back then, some some fantastic tracks that, that aren't around now. Um, and then, yeah, we've talked about the, I guess, the the fact that teams could move up and down and, and move around so much more freely back then than, than maybe they, they do now. Just give us an idea of what where you kind of place this period in, in motorsport history. It's got to be up there with, you know, one of the best sort of five or six year periods at least. And, and maybe people will look at it a little bit differently in terms of the years, but that that period was, was strong. I, I honestly think it was a great time in in. You know, I, it's you're right. It was kart championship auto racing teams because, of course, at this stage we had the breakaway with the RRL. Um, fundamentally, my biggest regret in my career is that I never got to race at the Indianapolis 500. So when I went across the pond, in my contract was Indy 500, and then I signed it. And then not too long after that, we had to split, and our team decided to go to uh, to kart. So I never got to go to Indy, which is always a frustration because I had. I think uh, out of six 500 races, I think I had five top six finishes, uh, one win and a second. So I always set the car up for 500 miles rather than setting out for an ultimate lap. But in terms of general sort of feeling of, yeah, that as an era, I think it was a great time. I really do. We had some fantastic drivers. We had some great teams, uh, some, some beautiful circuits, as you say, and some close motor racing. And for me, you know, again, JR will relate. It's all about that gladiatorial stuff. It's about being toe-to-toe with somebody and, you know, putting yourself against them and coming out the other end and going like, yeah, I set the guy up, I achieved the pass, and I've gone on to take a successful result from it. And, you know, great teamwork. And and don't get me wrong, they were brilliant cars to race. 900 horsepower. I mean, who wouldn't want 900 horsepower under the right foot? <laughs> JR would like that a lot, I think. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna even comment because it's making me jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, thanks so much for for coming on to give us a snapshot into this race, and I definitely recommend going back on on YouTube and watching that and some of the some of Mark's other brilliant performances in his career as well, whether that be in IndyCar or outside. I always remember. I don't know if this is going to offend you, Mark. I really hope it doesn't. But uh, when I think of you, I always think of the helmet. Um, and and the Pat West livery and, and your helmet just it's just I guess you just don't tend to get the the connection of a helmet design and a, a livery as much as we we used to back then and you know. uh, as long as you're not relating that to the movie Driven no uh, 
Absolutely not. Uh, because for me, it's probably the worst. Uh, it's probably the worst motor racing movie in the world. But anyway, uh, it's it something we can all agree on. Yeah, it wasn't me in the helmet. It was Jimmy Blind. So let's 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 go there for Jimmy. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks again for spending some time with us, Mark Blundell on the Race IndyCar podcast. Thanks very much. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right, that was Mark Blundell. If you've not already, definitely go back and just watch that 1997 Portland race, mainly because my boss, Matt Beer, is demanding that everyone does. He'll be very upset if, if people haven't gone back and watched it. JL, what, what did you think of Mark? Has he memorized uh, how many views it has so he can... I don't know if he's memorized how many views out it has. Exactly how many people we get to go watch it again. That's going to be our how we're, how we're measured this week. Yeah, like he's his level of knowledge about that race is quite outstanding. And it even goes... You know, we can even get into the context of like we were talking with Mark about the the tires, uh, the development of the wet tires, and that the the Firestones were about five seconds off at Detroit the year before, so they went to a load of tracks and just flooded the tracks to test, which is just you know some some Bernie Eccleston type stuff, isn't it? You just wouldn't get <laughs> just wouldn't get that now for sure because the mm-hmm. the insurance wouldn't allow it. Um, but just just some details like that, just. They're the kind of things that really make this time, you know, so, so special. But yeah, that was, that was good, wasn't it, JR? It's nice to get, um, you know, Mark doesn't mince his words. He's very honest and uh, everything just sort of, you know, comes out as, as is. And it's, uh, you always get the feeling that you sat right there with him in the car and that you're kind of looking out the visor with him. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, uh, you know, watching, rewatching that era from cart, you know, it's, it's interesting. We talk a lot about, we talk a lot these days, whether it's, you know, out in the open or kind of behind the scenes, just about the, the, the vehicle formula basically, right? Like what's, what is the, what's the combination of, you know, regardless of exactly how you achieve it, what's the combination of power, torque, mechanical grip of the car, aero grip, drag, you know, all of this stuff. And, and it's interesting that, you know, in this day and age, the technology exists, you know, you see it across, across motorsport to, to kind of like, hit the lap time that we're currently running in any variety of ways, you know, whereas back then just 
everything wasn't quite as refined. And so, I mean, it, it is kind of wild looking back at the event, like the lap time that they ran back then is basically the same that we're running right now. So, you know, the cars ultimately haven't really gotten any faster in like 20 years, which is, I, I can say having spent my entire IndyCar career in that, in that window, it's a little bit, there, there's a part of it that makes me sad, but that just seeing the way that the cars achieved the lap time and and seeing the onboards and seeing how analog the experience was for one and, and IndyCar is still very analog compared to F1 and and anything else but you know having to take your hand off the steering wheel like you know just little things like that that they they just they get, they suck you into the the driver's experience so much more because it just looks like chaos, you know, like these guys out there on, you know, even, even the wets in like drying conditions, you know, clearly just because they're not getting the traction, like because the car, the, the rear tire is just not hooking up. It's like, you think about the stiffness of the throttle springs must've been pretty heavy because they're not at any point getting a full throttle for like the entire, until they get back to the front straight away, you know, um, they're just, they're just having to really work the car. And, and you, and it was interesting listening to Mark talk about just kind of that, that sensation of balance behind the wheel and how important that is, particularly in those kinds of situations, you know, where it's just, you're, the car is kind of squirming around. It's not doing anything perfectly. You almost have to, you almost have to imagine yourself like a move, removing yourself a little bit from the, from the seat to just kind of have a bit of spatial awareness for like, what's, what's going on here? How do I, how do I just roll the most speed through these, through these corners and, and make this happen when you've got uh, an overwhelming amount of power uh, sitting right behind you and those turbocharged, you know, 2.65 liter liter engines at the time that, that lasted, you know, through the end of, through the end of champ car, basically. So, um, you know, it's, it, it's interesting that, you know, we talk a lot and, and Mark was obviously careful not to do too much of, you know, a back in the day segment, but, um, it, it, it is, you know, when you talk to guys about driving in that period, um, you know, I remember, uh, I've spoken with Dario about this, who, who was in that race, I think his rookie year, I think, uh, in, in 97 yeah. that, uh, you know, he was just like, it was just different, you know, like you'd, you'd show up, you'd show up after being out of the car for like a month, maybe like not even that long in the off season. And he, he made a, he made a funny comment once that, you know, there were times that you'd like ask for a diff change after, after the first run, just to give yourself like an hour to get your shit together before you had to get back in the car. Um, and so it's, it's cool to see that. And it's, uh, you know, it really is an important era of, of IndyCar racing and, and, or of, you know, open wheel racing in the U S for lots of reasons. Um, you know, but, but cool to see it. And obviously, you know, these guys that were a part of it look back on it you know, with fond memories. So definitely cool to hear from Mark's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, you know, Dario uh, with, with Hogan was in there and um, you know, cause we were talking about the level of competition and stuff and the, the people uh, around there. And obviously I, you had her to with, with Ray Hall as well. And, you know, just a, a really good group of mix of teams and drivers and even a little bit like now, I guess, where some of those teams like Ray Hall and Hogan maybe wouldn't be there every race, but they'd be, 
you know, there or thereabouts in a, in a few of them and would make things interesting. So yeah, definitely. I, I really enjoyed that segment. And to be honest, if this, if this podcast was just about 1997 and 1998, I, I would be okay with that to be honest, but <laughs> <laughs> we digress because we need to get into some current IndyCar. I'll run through a couple of things that I wanted to mention JR, and then I'll, I'll grab you for, for what you're looking at from Portland. I think the, the, the very interesting thing is that this is basically now a, a Penske and Ganassi title fight with a couple of outsiders in the mix, but not really in the mix, I think, at this point. I think we're fair to say that it's a, a Penske-Ganassi uh, fight to the finish now. I think the interesting thing is that they've both kind of reversed what they did last year. So uh, Ganassi have tested at Laguna and Penske have tested at Portland. So both, uh, I guess it's the exact reverse of what they did last year. So it'll be interesting to see if that impacts things in any way, shape or form. I know um, Joseph Newgarden and Will Power are both really keen to test at Portland to try and to try and find something there. And I know Ganassi weren't particularly happy with how they were as a team at Laguna last year, even though the results weren't too bad. So that's a really interesting element and something to consider when you're watching the results this weekend and, and looking at how things stack up is, is to note that they've obviously tested at those venues. So even if Penske maybe have a little bit of an edge at Portland, that doesn't mean you can rule Ganassi out of having the similar edge at, at Laguna, I guess. So that'll be uh, really interesting to watch. And we should just cover off a couple of um, indiscretions, I guess. We had Roman Grosjean crash at, at Portland, uh, not big ones. Uh, Marcus Ericsson had a little incident at, at Laguna as well. Um, but apart from that, I think it was all pretty straightforward and, and everyone's kind of head down for the this kind of weird like week and a half break we've had now between Gateway and then just two rapid fire races to to finish the season. What are you going to be looking out for? And is there anything you've kind of got your eye on looking at this weekend at the moment? Well, I guess I think that, uh, you know, this year in particular, it has seemed like the teams that have gone testing at these places or, you know, certainly the, the uh, you know, the contenders, when they've gone testing, they've made real gains, which is you just don't, don't always see quite as direct a correlation between those things. Sometimes you see teams go test and they're still looking for it, you know, when they, when they show up. So I'm expecting, you know, and it's worth remembering that while Penske last year at Portland didn't look great ultimately in qualifying that they were really fast throughout practice. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was, that was a head scratcher last year trying to figure out like, why do these guys not end up and same thing, frankly, at Laguna for those guys that, you know, throughout the, after the testing that they did at Laguna last year and then showing up to the race through practice, they looked good and then just didn't find it in qualifying kind of when it counted. So, uh, you know, I, I'm expecting for them to have kind of reconciled that at Portland in particular, because they've gone testing. We know that Ganassi was really strong there last year, just throughout, you know, they stuck, stuck a couple of cars right up at the front qualifying and then, um, you know, Polo and and Scott both went to the end on kind of a weird alt strategy when they got put to the back, and it, it basically just ended up not not impacting their chances that dramatically because it put them at a bit of a strategic advantage, having pitted from the back early in the race and being able to go longer on fuel through the through the duration of it. But um, I, you know, honestly, at this point. I'm I'm looking forward to having the two strongest teams that have the contenders all being good at both of these places. You know, despite the fact that there are definitely other drivers that'll end up in the mix, you'll have I think Colton Rossi. These are places that both of those guys have been really strong at. Uh, Grosjean is a bit of a dark horse at both of these tracks. Just you know, he's been kind of hit or miss this year, but 
can certainly operate at a high level at both these places. Malukas was fast in the test at at uh, at, at Laguna, I, I guess, was where they tested. Um, interestingly, Scott Dixon was not particularly competitive in the overall sheet at the end of the day at Laguna, but you got to figure that they'll kind of take the learnings from that. Polo was two tenths up on everybody else over the course of the weekends or over the course of the tests. So you got to figure that they'll be able to kind of rectify, you know, they'll be able to find the pace that, that Polo had. Um, you know, so I guess that's all just to say the Aero McLaren cars, there's, there's plenty of guys who can find themselves up front, but I think that we'll end up, I'm, I'm expecting to end up with the championship battle coming down to the wire with there being a win on offer and it, and it coming down to not just who finishes ahead of who else, but, but maybe it being down to like somebody needing to win the last race to be able to cement their championship standing. So, you know, again, another, another just great example of IndyCar producing this type of year end championship battle year after year without any kind of, you know, gimmicks across the course of the season outside of, you know, we've, as we talk about double points at Indy or whatever, but, um, you know, it's e- even without that having played out, we'd still be in this, in this spot basically here at this point in the year. So, um, that's, yeah, it's, it's going to be a great couple of races to watch at, 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 uh, you know, historic venues. I mean, these are, these are both places that were on the schedule in 97. Right. Um, so they've been, they've been difference makers for a long time. I heard you mention double points there. You just have to, you're like poking me to make me dance, aren't you? It's like dance, dance me, Benyon, dance me. Tell, tell me more. Tell me more about these double points at the 500. I'm not going there, JR. We're not doing it again. We're not doing it ever. No, we will do it again because I'll get annoyed about it at some point. But you, I'm in a good mood at the moment, so we're not we're not going to fall into that trap. I do you think it's important to mention? You talked uh, about the strategy last year, and if anyone's watching Portland for the first time this year, uh, you didn't catch last year's race, and it's worth at least grabbing the the like the bite sized 15 minute highlights on on YouTube if not grab the the full highlights or if you are able to watch it back in full then then do that because it's such an interesting race and obviously I had that early um you know kind of it wasn't really a shunt but it was just uh, everyone going off like skills at, at turn one which seems to happen at Portland every single year uh, on at least one restart and you had those guys all drop as far back as 16th and then Alex came from from 16th to win the race and it, it was all strategy um, in the sense that he was able to come back from 16th. But the the Ganassi cars, as you mentioned, did have the pace to also kind of match that and make that work. So uh, that was a really interesting race. And it shows that if you're watching this race for the first time, if someone goes off at the first corner, don't rule them out because they might win the race. You never know what's going to happen at Portland. It's a really interesting race. It's always tactically very entertaining. So that's definitely one to pick up. Uh, before then, we'll be back to talk about what's happened at Portland and fire up Laguna Seca for a, a championship finale preview. So make sure you hit us up with that. Before then, we'll have plenty of content on the-race.com. You can also email us on the podcast, podcasts at the-race.com. If you've got any questions for me or JR, or you've got anything that you want the podcast to cover, whether that's special guests or topics that you like. If you like this kind of more retro themed episode that we've gone for this week, Mark's going to hate me saying the word retro, isn't he, in relation to him. Um, I'm not trying to make Mark feel old, but that is 
more of a more of a retro vibe than we usually go for. Let's put it that way, JR. So it's not so that it's not offensive. Um, but like I said earlier, JR and I would quite happily do ninety seven as every episode of the Race IndyCar podcast. So we definitely don't have a problem with it. So yeah, drop us an email. Let us know. You can also, if you've got questions, you can send us a voice note, and we can pop that into the podcast. So you can. Uh, I guess virtually join JR and I on an episode of the Racing Indigo podcast. We'd be happy to have you. So that's all for this week's episode, and we'll catch you after Portland. The Athletic.